Hi, this is Amy Proal with the Polybio Podcast, and my guest today is Dr. Akiko Iwasaki, and she is the Valdemar, uh, Valdemar von Zetwitz Professor in the Department of Immunobiology and a professor in the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology at Yale University. She is also a principal investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And her research focuses on the intersection of viral activity in the human immune response. And since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, her lab has been studying the SARS-CoV-2 virus in a range of capacities, with the primary focus being to better understand the biological mechanisms contributing to long COVID, a condition we're all familiar with in which patients develop a range of debilitating chronic symptoms after infection with SARS-CoV-2. And with that, Akiko, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Amy, for having me. Great. Well, let's jump in, Akiko. You published so many papers in the last year or so related to COVID and SARS-CoV-2, but I'm particularly interested in your research on long COVID. How are you approaching the study of long COVID? I know you're doing some work on a viral reservoir, the possibility that the virus may not fully clear in patients with long COVID, but also, of course, on the immune response as well. Yeah, thank you. Um, so we became very interested in you know, trying to understand long COVID because without the understanding of the root cause of the disease, it's very difficult to come up with proper treatment. So uh, how we are approaching as an immunologist, I'm approaching this problem from the immunological perspective, uh, both with respect to, as you say, uh, potential viral reservoir driving, uh, chronic uh, inflammation um, and or autoimmunity uh, being engaged and um, as you've so nicely described in your review, there are many other possibilities, uh, such as latent virus or microbiome and tissue damage and other issues. So uh, we're not like really restricted to thinking about uh, long COVID from only one perspective, but uh, holistically looking at what's going on there. Yes, amazing. When it comes to viral reservoir, how are you testing that uh, possibility? Right, so um, by looking at the immune responses in these patients, there's a lot of clues we can gain from that. For instance, there are certain types of cytokines and T cell responses that happen after a virus infection or in response to a presence of virus. And these kinds of factors are usually not engaged in people without you know, chronic virus infection. And we are seeing that some of these factors are elevated in patients with long COVID. Uh, and that's also been reported by other groups, uh, such as the presence of um, interferons, which are you know, typical antiviral factors that fight off the infection. But when triggered in a long-term setting, it can also be quite detrimental. Yes, interesting. Okay, and you know, I've seen in terms of where reservoir might be, there was an interesting study that showed that SARS-CoV-2 could infect adipose or fat tissue. And I saw you comment that you thought that might be a likely reservoir site, which makes sense to me because viruses love lipid or, uh, and which is, you know, a form of fat. You think that that, you still feel that way? Yeah, so I'm actually following, as you are too, um, various papers that report presence of the virus or at least viral components in various tissues. Um, so we now see multiple papers, both published and in preprint demonstrating the viral antigen uh, spike uh, nucleocapsid as well as viral RNA uh, through PCR or RNA scope um, in various tissues, including the fat tissue, uh, as well as the gut 
The gut has been a place where multiple papers have demonstrated the presence, um, as well as in lymph nodes and you know other organs now, um, brain and potentially other tissues. So I, I think that there is, uh, you know, I, I, won't, I, I don't know if they're infection capable viruses, but at least remnants of virus or components of virus appear to be present in various tissues. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, and, you know, then in addition to reservoir, you're also looking at the immune response and autoantibodies. Um, I at least know that much, uh, correct? And you did identify a broad range of autoantibodies in patients with acute COVID. And I think you're moving into long COVID with that analysis as well. Yeah, absolutely. So during uh, this is a work that we do in collaboration with Professor Aaron Ring's laboratory at Yale. So um, Professor Ring has developed a technology called REAP, which is rapid extracellular antigen profiling, uh, which is a high throughput way of looking at autoantibodies uh, against, now I think he has over 6,000 human um, exoproteome, which are proteins expressed on the surface or secreted. And looking at the uh, autoantibody with REAP, we found a number of autoantibody that are present in people with acute COVID. And uh, now we are, as you say, we're extending that research to people with long COVID. Um, there, there are a couple of ways we're tackling this. Uh, one is to uh, re uh, recall the same set of patients that we've reported the uh, autoantibodies auto uh, from the acute phase to see how long these uh, the same autoantibodies last in these patients and whether those patients are experiencing uh, long-term symptoms. Um, the second way is to do a cross-sectional study where we are recruiting patients uh, with Dr. David Petrino's group at Mount Sinai to see whether patients with long COVID have uh, autoantibodies. Um, we don't know the history of autoantibodies in that case, but at least cross-sectionally, do we see a, a set of autoantibodies that can associate with certain symptoms? Yeah, that's great. Um, when it comes to the autoantibodies, are you going to be able to explore the possibility that molecular mimicry might contribute to at least some of the autoantibodies generated? In other words, what I mean by that is the immune system might fire on a viral protein or a viral peptide, and then that has a similar sequence to a human receptor structure, and so it sort of cross-reacts with that and hits it as well? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, there are two types of autoantibodies that may develop. One is the molecular mimicry in that uh, our attempt to fight off the virus is actually cross-reacting to some sort of, you know, related self molecules. Um, and we've seen that certainly happen in a subset of acute COVID patients. And uh, that could, you know, also be happening in long COVID patients. Uh, the other way, other way to get auto-reactive antibodies by standard activation of B cells or T cells that are unrelated to the virus, but because they, the antigen was close by, they also became triggered. And uh, those types of autoantibodies may be you know, also happening in long COVID patients. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're, we're looking at both possibilities. 
That's great. Cool. Um, when it comes to the virus, you did some interesting work in an organoid model um, where you showed that SARS-CoV-2 could infect the brain and neurons in an organoid model. Um, so there has been a little bit of debate on whether SARS-CoV-2 can infect the brain. Um, where do you stand on that? Does it seem possible? Um, a lot of autopsy studies have, a couple have definitely found the virus in human brain tissue as well. Exactly, Amy. So, um, uh, you know, we're not saying that every single person infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2 have neurological uh, infection, uh, not at all. Uh, the, the, it's probably happening in a subset of patients, uh, you know, and that's why the autopsy studies are, um, you know, not all consistent in demonstrating that uh, there is presence of virus or virus antigen in the brain. However, um, as you say, there are reports, including our own, that demonstrate that potentially subset of patients might have directly uh, direct infection in the brain and which cell types and what region of the brain again it all differs between different studies but uh, I, I would think that this could happen uh, it may not be a dominant thing that happens right but it seems that the virus has the capacity to infect the brain that's the way i would at least interpret the data so far okay exactly. yeah mm -hmm. um you know, from there, um, you know, you developed a, a mouse model, a humanized mouse model, where you can study some of this, these phenomenon. Um, and you did create a, a, you, I think, have been studying chronic infection with the virus a bit in that capacity as well. Um, is that, is yes, that the case? Yes, that's right. Absolutely. So that is a, I mean, everything we do is in collaboration with multiple groups. So I'm just going to mention people's names. Yeah. But uh, that is with um, SNCFIC, uh, a postdoc in Richard Flavel's lab. Um, so Dr. Flavel has um, developed this Mr. G6 mice, which have a lot of human immune genes knocked into the mouse locus. So mimicking a lot of the um, key components of the immune system of humans. Um, and, and also they uh, inject uh, into these mice uh, some human stem cells, hematopoietic stem cells that develop into T cells, B cells, and myeloid cells, and so on. And so uh, it's probably the best sort of humanized, the most humanized uh, mouse model for COVID. Um, and in that setting, as you say, there, the, you know, when we infect these animals, oh, in order to infect these animals, we also do one more trick, which is to give them AAV vector expressing human ACE2. And that enables respiratory infection of these mice, uh, in addition to them having human immune responses. And so mimicking you know, as much as we could the human immune system, what we're seeing is uh, indeed that there's uh, chronic infection um, happening in these mice. And these mice are not uh, quite immunocompetent. So that is another reason why they probably can't clear the virus on their own. Uh, however, they have enough immune response to trigger inflammation uh, that mimics what's happening in some, uh, some you know, chronic infected humans. And uh, in that setting, we are seeing inflammation. And, and interestingly, that inflammation is only seen when there is human immune system injected. So in the absence, we, we don't see that. And again, kind of implicating the immune system itself as a driver of the inflammatory responses in these um, chronic infection models. Yeah, that's a great mouse model. It's really cool that you're able to work with something like that to do these kinds of, of studies. Um, you know, when 
it comes to that, you also in mice recently showed that even a mild infection in the lungs could lead to a pretty brave, broad, you know, immune activation, um, even in the brain when it came to microglial cells in the brain. Could you describe that a bit more? Absolutely. So that's a great, another great collaboration with um, Professor Michelle Monge's group at Stanford. Uh, and so what we did collectively is to create a respiratory only mild infection model of COVID-19. Uh, what we did is to take a, a mouse and then uh, again introduce the human ACE2, which is the receptor for the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, through the AAV vector. And we enable um, just respiratory infection because the human ACE2 is only expressed in the cells of the lung. And so we give this mice SARS-CoV-2 and there's mild infection that happens only in the lung. Um, and we cannot detect any virus in the brain because we um, kind of intentionally made it so that the mice can only replicate the virus in the lung. Um, and we don't measure any overt disease. There's no weight loss. There's no sickness behavior in these mice as far as we can tell. Um, and the virus, you know, we give obviously very um, small amount of virus so that the virus itself isn't uh, really causing pneumonia or anything like that. So in that setting, what we see is a uh, prolonged secretion of cytokines throughout the body, like circulating as well as in the cerebral spinal fluid of these mice, uh, not only a seven days post-infection, but also uh, seven weeks post-infection, which is a very long time after the infection. And uh, along with those elevated cytokines, we see, um, as you stated, the reactive microglia, a loss of oligodendrocytes, and then um, you know, loss of myelination in some of the um, axons of these um, neurons that we see in the white matter. So it, it sort of um, was relative, you know, this is a very mild infection leading to uh, sort of chronic consequences that we see in the brain of these mice. Um, and if these were to happen, even if a small amount of this were to happen in humans, we would expect significant impact uh, of, you know, demyelinating uh, neurons in the, in the brain. So, um, you know, and, and we also collaborated with uh, Dr. Avinath's group at NIH, where he had um, autopsy samples from patients who had SARS-CoV-2 infection who um, died of, you know, uh, other causes, um, as some of them died of other causes. And um, what there again, we see the same kind of reactive microglia uh, in the brain. So it's really hard to, you know, uh, draw a conclusion from human autopsy studies because, you know, they may have had many other um, issues, obviously, because they, they died of some uh, cause. But uh, linking all this evidence together, it, it supports this idea that perhaps respiratory only mild acute infection could lead to long-term consequences in the brain through potentially these types of inflammatory uh, mediators. Absolutely. It's really compelling to you know, think about how a mild infection could have flow-on consequences like that. Do you think there could be any also connection between the vagus nerve, which can sense inflammation in the body and convey it to the brain in a manner that can activate glia? Do you think there might be some of that pathway engaged as well? Yeah, absolutely. So when I say mediators, we, you know, it could be a soluble mediator. It could be 
uh, vagus nerve, as you say. It could be multiple other things. We don't know what connects the infection to this uh, sort of, you know, the result that we see in the brain. But absolutely, there could be an, a, a, a vagal nerve component in here as well. Yeah, that's one of the things we're interested in, um, the vagus nerve to sort of brainstem signaling, because it does um, the brainstem does have a lot of nuclei that control uh, sickness behavior, autonomic function, a lot of the symptoms that we end up seeing in patients with long COVID. So that's cool. Um, yeah, then, you know, another topic that's being researched um, in patients with long COVID is the possibility that, um, you know, I'm going to say in simple terms, immune dysregulation during acute COVID might allow other pathogens already harbored by the patient, such as Epstein-Barr virus, to reactivate and drive symptoms itself. Is that something you're looking into? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, it was very nicely described in your review. Um, and we are definitely looking into uh, involvement of other pathogens, um, whether it be sort of, you know, endogenous viruses or um, potentially other pathogens. And uh, there was this nice paper in Cell that was published last week by Sue et al, where um, they demonstrated that one of the four risk factors for developing long COVID at the time of diagnosis was indeed um, uh, EBV viremia. And I'm sure you read this paper, but um, that suggests, I mean, again, it's not a causal link, it's a correlation, but still that certain types of, you know, reactivation of latent viruses could be contributing to um, diseases. So uh, we, we are looking at this serologically to see whether there are any um, pathogens uh, for which the patients are reacting to at the, at the time of um, you know, suffering from long COVID to see if there's any link between a, um, a, another pathogen and long COVID. Yeah, that's great. You know, would you say that it do you think that every long COVID patient has something very similar occurring, or do you think that there's a mix of different factors contributing to cases that, that lead to long COVID? In other words, maybe one person has viral reservoir, maybe one person is dealing with EPV reactivation, maybe one person has more of an autoimmune issue. Do you think that's likely happening in that yeah. way? I, I think you're right about that. Um, it, you know, these possibilities that we discussed earlier are not mutually exclusive, and it may be happening concomitantly or it may be happening in sequence. So a let's say a prolonged virus um, infection leading to bystander activation of you know water reactive cells or um, it could be you know that leading to immunosuppression that leads to reactivation of certain viruses. I mean, you know, all of these could be happening. So we really need to understand both longitudinally and cross-sectionally, like what are the reactive uh, virus um, viruses or maybe other pathogens, microbiome, as you're studying, um, that is contributing to uh, the collective disease. And that brings up the importance of kind of a precision medicine here, because um, people may be suffering from, let's say, um, persistent virus you know, may not actually may be harmful to treat these patients with immunosuppressives, whereas people suffering from autoreactive, um, you know, uh, diseases may benefit from immunosuppression. So I think we kind of really need to, to know what biomarkers go along with each of these types of disease and treat patients accordingly. 
Yes, I agree completely. I think this is actually a time when personalized medicine or personalized approaches could take off because that's exactly what you described does show an opportunity for being able to find biomarkers and seeing what's going on in an individual patient and somewhat tailoring eventual treatment options to that particular patient instead of there necessarily being one long COVID treatment or one long COVID drug, um, which, you know, some people, which would be cool, but there's probably going to be a little bit more diversity in, in what would occur, I would say. Interesting. Um, you know, I also know that you're interested in myalgic encephalitis, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, ME-CFS, um, and that some of your work does bear relevance to that diagnosis, um, especially because uh, ME-CFS cases are often or mostly initiated or exacerbated by infection, including some of the herpes viruses that maybe those that reactivate in long COVID, so there's a lot of overlap. Um, so are you studying MECFS? Um, I know that we're actually going to have you work on some sample that we're collecting with some of our teams. So in that sense, I kind of know you are, <laughs> but what else do you, uh, what else do you see in terms of, you know, trying to also better understand the MECFS disease process as part of your work on long COVID? Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, there, there is like wealth of research that's been done on MECFS that we are constantly learning from, um, as well as, you know, there are many, many overlapping um, symptoms and uh, potentially pathogenesis. Uh, and there are also some distinct symptoms that go along with distinct uh, pathogens that cause these MECFS. And so, uh, but the, the, the fatigue component is shared among all of these and so we're absolutely interested in studying MECFS and very grateful that uh, I'm collaborating with you and your team to be able to do this. And um, also, I know that um, Professor Ring is um, currently looking at autoreactive antibodies from um, MECFS cohorts. Um, so hopefully with, with these collective efforts that we're having now, uh, we can shed some light onto MECFS as well. And let's say we find that long COVID is, you know, ha has four different causes and some of them with combinations, then similar kinds of, you know, thinking can be applied for MECFS. And the biomarkers I'm hoping are going to be shared, uh, in which case it would also help uh, people with MECFS to get the right kind of treatment. Um, and, and of course, the duration of, uh, that, that people are suffering from MECFS is much longer than uh, long COVID. And so, you know, maybe there, there are different stages of these chronic um, sort of uh, sequela of an acute infection, and they might require different kinds of biomarkers, because at that stage, maybe different things are happening. So um, I, I'm very excited to be able to contribute to um, improvement of health in all of these situations. But we do have to, uh, you know, we can't put everything into general blanket and we do have to consider each of these um, also separately. Yeah, no, that's a similar to our approach is definitely just still looking at, you know, a number of topics and in, in patients with MECFS, because there is some, there are some teams that think there'll be one again, like a single MECFS biomarker or something like that. But again, we suspect there'd be more of a, a, a diversity as well. So that's, 
I, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, another topic that is uh, interesting in long COVID are the microclots identified by Rusi Pretorius and team, um, which, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein does seem pretty capable of driving a range of coagulatory processes. Um, and I think you're getting involved with some of that work as well. Absolutely. So we're just um, starting to collaborate with um, that group, uh, along with uh, David Petrino, who, who's kind of invited me into, into that group. Um, I know there's a large group that's developed around the microclot issues, and uh, we're very you know, happy to contribute our immunological insights to that. Um, it's very interesting, you know, how these clots form and what they're, what they're sort of what the contents are and you know whether they might be some uh, immune complexes that may have formed in response to the virus or autoantigen um, and again it, it would be interesting to kind of figure out the molecular basis of these clots um, and that would sort of give us a sort of more root cause of um, how these clots might form absolutely yes and you know i think that that again the clots seem like they are trapping, they are trapping some of the molecules that usually break clots down, which I find interesting, but we don't necessarily know what else might be trapped in there. In other words, if you just measure the blood of a patient with long COVID, you might be missing some of what uh, might be trapped in the clots. So there does seem potential there if you're able to break up the clots and there's a protocol they're working on for that to also see if breaking up these clots leads to almost more a release of more of the things that might be in the blood of patients. I don't know. I find that potentially interesting. <laughs> yeah, I understand you're also part of that uh, microclot group, and yeah. I do look forward to learning a lot more from that as well. Yeah, no, it's a it's a cool group. It's a group of people that came together from a number of different places around the world to just kind of jump in on the topic. Um, it's been cool to interact with so many people from different labs. So yeah, we are excited for you to join more. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so yeah. Um, what else are, so what else are you going to, you know, what else are you looking into your, what's, I mean, you have plenty going on, but I guess a couple other things are you've tried to test the vaccine, for example, um, as a potential way to clear potential viral reservoir in patients with long COVID. Um, what did you end up finding with that? I think you found mi a mixed uh, phenomenon, right? Yeah, so we're still in the middle of analyzing those data. It takes a while because, um, you know, we are collecting longitudinally um, samples from these patients. And, um, but, but, you know, as you know, there, there are, different responses in long hauler to vaccines. Some have improvement, while others have no changes in their symptoms and others um, have worsening of symptoms. And again, that tells me that different things are driving the disease. Um, but we're kind of trying to learn from the immune responses in the long haulers to see what changes are associated with improvement or worsening of the symptom so that we can sort of mimic, um, you know, agents that could trigger similar responses that would obviously improve the symptoms as opposed to make things worse. And, and so if we can understand the factors that are driving improvement um, and to come up with some therapies that would um, allow patients to, to recover from long COVID. Um, and of course, vaccines are great, but, you know, 
as I said, not everyone is improving after the vaccine. So knowing what factors are uh, making that improvement is so important. And, you know, in, in our cohort, um, so we, we collect samples before and after the vaccine and to follow them over time. Um, and we are seeing that many of these patients are improving in, in their symptoms. And there is, uh, again, uh, accompanied by different uh, changes in the immune system. So uh, immune responses. And I'd love to be able to share that work with um, public soon, but um, it just takes a while to, to go through all the data. Oh, I'm sure that seems the, the pace at which you're working is, is quite rapid, if you ask me. So I'm, I'm pretty, that seems pretty normal that you're still working on that data. But oh, I agree, that's an amazing way to not just to not just stop at just seeing, okay, how did you respond to the vaccine, but to measure so many other factors to be able to understand if someone responded more positively or more negatively, can you basically better understand why? And then that really goes into helping to understand the differences, you know, like we were saying, if people, certain people may have certain factors contributing to their long COVID symptoms in, in ways that, you know, others do not or whatever. So that's, a, I think, a really great research design that you're doing there. Thank um, you very much. Yeah. yeah no, um, you know, with, I guess one of the things, because I've been studying the role of pathogens in chronic disease processes for a number of years now. And I think when SARS-CoV-2 and COVID started, came on the scene, it's been wonderful to see so many teams jump in and just say, look, SARS-CoV-2 can um, infect this tissue. SARS-CoV-2 can alter cell metabolism. SARS-CoV-2 can do. Um, and do you think, you know, one of the things is, for example, do you think that we should be studying many pathogens with more intensity um, than just SARS-CoV-2? It seems like I understand that the virus is, is affecting many people right now, but it almost seems worth, for example, studying if a mild influenza infection can lead to changes in microglial activation, or it seems like that this could bring in more of an era in which we begin to really study what more pathogens are capable of doing in chronic disease. Yes, absolutely. Um, so what we're doing with SARS-CoV-2 is just sort of highlighting what yes. we don't understand about infectious diseases. Yes. Um, yeah, comparing to other pathogens will also bring us a lot more insight as to how a unique virus uh, might trigger these kinds of symptoms. And, and indeed, we are doing the influenza infection um, in uh, to parallel that um, mild infection model that we were talking about. Um, and the other thing I, I forgot to mention is that the, um, the vaccine um, study that we're doing is really in close collaboration with Harlan Krumholtz, um, professor at Yale, uh, as well as Daisy Massey, who's leading this um, patient recruitment. And um, many, many patient groups, including Survivor Corps, um, as well as patient-led groups, uh, who really helped us um, kind of think through the design of questionnaires and study. And uh, we are really trying to uh, involve patients as equal participants in our research. So this is another reason we're very excited about this vaccine study because it's a, it's a very different way of approaching science. That's really cool. I agree that patient reported feedback to me is a constant source of hypothesis and also just incorporating what patients are experiencing you know, and just under in the real world into study design makes it all that much more applicable to than the real world when you have your data. And that's basically why I started this podcast was because 
I think patients should absolutely be engaged in the research process, but I think to do that, they need to understand what's going on with research. So that's why it's really cool to be able to interview you and to get that out there so that patients can even begin to uh, understand more of what's going on. Um, so I, I, I share that sentiment. Um, yeah, cool. Um, so what do you, you know, I guess, how did you get into the study of viruses and immunity? You know, you happen to be so well positioned when, when COVID started, where you're studying the topics, you know, your Twitter handle is virus, viruses <laughs> and immunity, right? Yeah. So literally at the intersection of virus and immunity is pretty much what most matters, uh, here. How did you become interested in that and sort of work into that, uh, area? Yeah, um, so I've been interested, well, I, I'm an immunologist. I, I trained in immunology and I've been studying different aspects of the immune system. Um, but when I started my lab in at Yale in 2000, I really wanted to do something that people weren't really paying attention to. And at that time, um, I was very, uh, and currently also, we're very interested in the mucosal immune system and mucosal surfaces are where the viruses and other pathogens enter our, our body, um, such as the intestinal tract, the respiratory tract, the genital tract, you know, these are the susceptible surfaces uh, that the viruses exploit. And so um, I wanted to study this interface um, and looking into different mucosa at, at that time, there was very little understood and still there is very little understood in the uh, genital mucosa. And so one of the key pathogens I focused on is um, herpes simplex viruses, uh, type one and type two, and trying to understand how the virus enters the host through that site and what immune responses are effective in blocking that response. So that's um, how I started because of the sort of unmet medical need uh, as well as sort of mystery around like how viruses are um, dealt with by the host immune system in these at the site of the infection, which is the general mucosa in this case. And so I started my lab around that, but then I built in other mucosal surfaces as uh, my lab expanded uh, by people coming in from in, into my lab as a postdoc or student interested in different questions, such as um, influenza virus questions were brought in by um, a postdoc who had experience with flu infection and rhinovirus um, topics were, you know, uh, included because of the interest of another postdoc. So it's sort of built around the mucosal immune system and viruses. And over time, we kind of learned to study different um, mucosal tissues with different viral infections. And, um, you know, not all mucosa are, are the same. It's a general mucosa and the respiratory mucosa and, and the intestinal mucosa are very, very distinct. And we also need to understand like how to deal with uh, infection at these different surfaces. Um, and so, as you say, you know, when COVID hit, we were in a very good position to begin to tackle these issues because we've had, uh, you know, decades of uh, thinking and research and expertise in this area. Yes. Oh, exactly. And I think that I understand why you thought that was sort of an untapped area of research because there's a, not a lot of 
there, I think there could be, should be more teams like yours. There are teams that study viruses and there are teams that study the immune system, but there are not that many teams that connect the topics. And so I think that that, that connection, beginning to you know, do that at a much larger capacity is really how we're gonna advance, you know, stop work that's overly segregated on some of this stuff. So that's really cool. Um, yeah, um, one thing, um, let me think, um, you know, with uh, this, so how do you see then moving forward with uh, your research from now on with long COVID? What would be your main goals? Well, um, our dream is to really understand the, you know, pathogenesis of long COVID. What's driving long COVID in different patients? Um, and because because that is really the only way to bring appropriate therapy uh, yeah. to these people who are desperately in need of some you know effective therapy, um, and so th that's in a nutshell what we want to do. And it might take us years to get there, but we're very determined to understand. And uh, you know the world is making great progress on a daily basis on trying to understand these kinds of issues. And I'm hopeful that uh, collectively the scientific field can come up with some um, real answers. Um, but you know that that's really our, our driving driving force uh, comes from like you know, not only just the scientific intrigue, but also the patients. Um, you know, I get emails and messages from patients on a daily basis suffering from so many different symptoms um, after COVID. And um, I, I, it really drives me and my team to um, to stick with this goal and trying to really get to the bottom of it. Yes, same. Yes, I agree. You know, with with long COVID, one of the trends is that patients develop long COVID not just after severe disease, but also after sometimes moderate or mild infection. And with that in mind, how do you feel about Omicron and long COVID? I realize we basically need more research, but the fact that Omicron may be more mild, uh, does that necessarily in your mind, how, how does that play out with you? One also thing is that Omicron appears to evade the immune response more than some of the earlier strains of SARS-CoV-2. And there's been a, a, some studies on that, you know, interferon signaling may not be as robust with Omicron and some factors like that. Do you think that that, that might, do you, do you think that Omicron might be harder to clear than other variants um, of SARS-CoV-2 because of that? Yeah, it's very hard to know uh, whether Omicron will provide any different outcomes uh, in terms of long COVID, right? Because um, it, it's too early to tell whether people will develop and, and what percentage of people will develop uh, long COVID with Omicron. The other complication to answering this question is that many of us are already um, one way or the other immune to the virus. Um, you know, having sufficient memory response, even though the neutralizing antibodies may be well escaped by the Omicron. So, um, you know, having a population of people with some immune responses, hopefully there will be less uh, people suffering from long COVID after the Omicron. However, um, I would be surprised if we don't see uh, long COVID happening after the Omicron, especially in people who are not uh, immunized or who have never had infection with COVID. Um, there, there's nothing in this virus that would indicate that it wouldn't cause 
long COVID, right? So um, the other interesting thing to bring up about the Omicron variant is that it, it appears to be um, much more readily detected in the saliva compared to the nasal cavity, uh, at least during the early phase of the infection. And people, um, you know, suffer from like sore throat uh, and sort of upper respiratory tract issues, much more so than um, loss of smell and other things that may happen in the nose and olfactory bulb. So there may be a different tropism within the respiratory tract of the Omicron virus that may skew you know, one way or the other, the long COVID. And that would also be important to understand, like where, um, where does the virus have to be in order to cause the long COVID? And would one place or the other um, predispose someone, right, for a, a, a more uh, chances of getting the long COVID? So uh, whatever we find will be important, but what's frustrating is that we don't really have a great um, survey of how many people develop long COVID after each of these variants, yeah. right? So we, we don't even have the base to say like, okay, alpha created this many and beta yeah. did this many, right? We, we just don't have that kind of information. I agree. That's been really frustrating. I sometimes have to infer how many people seem to be getting long COVID off Twitter. I, I think that seemed, that's crazy. I would really wish that there was a more large-scale effort to collect data on that, <laughs> on long COVID. Um, yeah, I think, you know, do you feel that long COVID is being brought up, and up, up enough right now with the general public? There's a bit of an attitude of, hey, Omicron's mild. Don't worry about it anymore. Get back to your life. What do you tell people when you hear that? Yeah, that, that messaging um, is uh, dangerous because uh, we don't know what the consequence of uh, long-term consequences of Omicron infection is. And when we don't know, we need to assume the worst or at least assume that it would be similar to the other variants. Um, and I feel like even if the uh, percentage of people developing long COVID is half, let's say, quite often optimistically with the Omicron, right? That's still so many tens of millions of people um, getting long COVID after the Omicron. So uh, maybe hundreds of millions of people, I don't know. Um, so I, I think that it's, it's dangerous to assume that you'll only have an acute mild infection with Omicron. And it's certainly not the case, especially for people who are vulnerable or who are uh, not yet vaccinated. Agreed. Yeah, no, I would love to, even my own friends and family don't hear much about long COVID. And I, you know, I, I come in and I say, hey, that's a factor. And it's a little worrisome that people who I know well are not even aware that that's something they should be considering. So I hope that that gets out there more. Cool. Well, Akiko, you're work. I could have probably asked you 10 million more questions, but it's been great to connect in this capacity. Um, your work is greatly uh, enhancing our understanding of what's going on with patients with long COVID and, you know, has so much potential to inform related disease processes like ME-CFS. Um, I look forward to hopefully maybe just touching base with you in a while to hear some updates, but it's been really cool to speak with you today and keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Amy. It was lovely talking to you too.